Burning Books with Eric Beckruben. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today we're talking about a book in which there's definitely something to appreciate or admire, but a better and briefer description is that this work, The Nature of Blood, is a worthy book. I first encountered the writing of the author Carol Phillips in university when I read Crossing the River, and I remembered thinking, yes, this is a book to be studied, and so too is The Nature of Blood, which was published in 1997. It is a classroom book in the best and worst traditions, which can mean a couple of different things. So let's get started. I wasn't always this sarcastic or critical or dismissive of the nature of blood. I bought it and began reading it because it seemed promising. The story begins in Cyprus, in a displaced person's camp, and it's not immediately apparent to the reader what is happening. This, I'll say right off the bat, is not a bad thing. In fact, in this case, it was a sign of a book going well. Saying that the reader is not quite certain of what's going on is not the same thing as saying the reader is lost or confused. The setting was clear. The communication between characters was economical and intriguing. You can follow what has occurred since the beginning of the scene, but the greater context and the sense of where the story is going, neither is self-evident. And while I'm on the subject, the opposite is also true. That the book suffers when it's too apparent where the plot is going. But we'll get to that part soon. For now, let's go back to the good, to the displaced persons camp in Cyprus. Refugees have been assembled in some kind of pseudo-transit station, and we soon learn that they're waiting to be moved onto the young state of Israel. The reader is introduced to the camp by following the movements of a doctor who is treating a young displaced person, or DP, and telling that DP about the life that awaits him at the end of the Mediterranean in the new state of Israel. But as soon as you read the doctor's descriptions, you get the sense that he is struggling to explain himself. There is tension in his words. The wishful dreams of a young doctor describing a new and promising land run up against abstractions and outlines, as though he doesn't yet know the specifics of the situation in the new country, because that situation is far from settled. The certainties that are imparted to the reader are about the doctor himself. He has a wife and a daughter, although they're in the United States, which means he's on his own. And we get from this a sense that he is a believer, that he is there for a cause, the new state and its future citizens. But we don't know much more than that. Little occurs beyond this introduction before the reader is displaced, displacement being a recurring subject that is built into the structure of the plot, which goes from mid-20th century Cyprus to 15th century Venice to the Oxford English Dictionary, and so on. So, when reading The Nature of Blood, don't get settled too much into one time or place, because as soon as you do, you'll be on to another. The next stop in The Nature of Blood is a different kind of transit station, a liberated concentration camp where Ava Stern, hovering between adolescence and early adulthood, waits to be dispatched by the liberating forces. Ava has options. She could go to Israel, although the journey is, thanks to the British, treacherous and the welcome is uncertain. Or she may go to England as one of the liberating soldiers a Londoner is enticing her to do. But in the face of this option, Ava is indifferent. Physically and emotionally, she is closed, lapidary. She lives mostly in her head 
and mostly in the past. Whatever realities she encounters run almost immediately into speculation and imagination. And it is Ava's recollections, roughly divided into three parts, that comprise the majority of the content of the book. Those three parts are life in Germany just before the war, life in the ghetto, and life in the extermination camps. And here, with the mention of those concentration camps, we can begin to locate the big effing problem of this book. If I can put it into a few sentences, I'd use these. Papa's parents were among the first to board the train to the east. Word reached us after we had moved out of the four-story house and into the small apartment. I was ashamed, for my first thought was of my grandparents' house and how nobody would want a place in which there was no running water and where the toilets were outside and did not flush. I pick out this excerpt because it is unremarkable and therefore exemplary. A girl who has lost contact with her grandparents, who were among the first to board the trains, thinks of the four-story house they left behind and feels ashamed for them. Embarrassed by her grandparents' poverty, ashamed to be related to them, Sure, that I could understand, but ashamed on their behalves? In this circumstance, in this time, shame? Of course, in this particular case, it could be me, but I'm going to venture that it's not, and in any case, it's merely one point in a constellation that I would call the author's misdirected sense of propriety. This is Ava Stern, a little later, still in the camp, looking, perhaps for the first time, into a mirror and having a fit. Again, listen to the language she uses in describing her own so-called breakdown. A stranger's face with large, puffy eyes. I do not want this anguished expression. How can the stranger be me? I look like them, ugly and ravaged. I begin to laugh at this mask. I smear the lipstick around my mouth. A jagged slash, red like blood. Tomorrow... They will release me into an empty world with only Jerry for company. Jerry has never seen my true face. Oh, Jerry, my heart is broken. Perhaps you can mend it a little, but it will never again be complete. Do you understand this? Sorry, did you say you were anguished? And that perhaps Jerry, the guard who has taken an interest in you, can mend you? even though deep down in your heart, you will never again be complete. Sorry, are you reading from the end notes of an anthology of sonnets, or are you a concentration camp survivor? You're reading from an end note. My mistake. And this keeps happening. You think you're reading the thoughts of a distraught, distended, frankly destroyed character, but she keeps expressing herself in what I can only call implausible English. And she's not the only one. There are other traumatized dramatis personae in this book, And they too speak, and, more problematically, think, like exercises in polished grammatical style. Good diction, good syntax, good grasp of rhythm. But while this might do for a grade school grammar test, it is a problem for a reader, and especially for the subject. While it is correct to say that traumatized individuals like Ava do go back and forth in time, and do remember too much, as the author suggests, and sometimes do add to these memories, what they do not do is re-enter the language of everyday life as if they're on a park stroll in 1880 and aren't the geraniums lovely this year. In the episode on Hans-Erich Nossack's The End, 
there was a quote about the isolation of the traumatized individual. In this case, survivors of the World War II bombing of Hamburg. And I'm just going to bring it back. So it came to pass that people who lived together in the same house and ate at the same table breathed the air of completely separate worlds. They tried to reach out to each other, but their hands did not meet. Which of them, then, was blind? They spoke the same language, but what they meant by their words were entirely different realities. Which of them, then, was deaf? We have still found no way to translate this to each other. Anyone familiar with the response of individuals to traumatic historical events will recognize Nossack's descriptions as familiar, and similarly recognize the disingenuousness of Phillips's self-consciously contained and mannered speakers. By being so very polite and careful in his prose, the author ends up distancing the writing from the events under description. And making things worse is the fact that the prose is less assiduous than it is fussy. Yeah, that's right. For all the appearance of care spent in the selection of words, this book can get very sloppy. For example, in these three consecutive sentences describing a cafe scene. The couple smiled, but their smiles marked the onset and conclusion of their engagement with us. The man replaced his glasses while the woman dabbed at her face with an embroidered lace handkerchief. And then they sat and quickly angled themselves so that they faced each other. So, mark the onset and the conclusion. Why not just conclusion? Next there's... And then... And loath as I am to agree with anything Jonathan Franzen has said, he did once say somewhere that you cannot use both. It's either and or then. And finally... Angled themselves so that they faced each other. Why not angle themselves toward each other? All right, I'm piling on, I admit it, but the author is asking for it. Writers monopolize a reader's attention, and that's okay, that's what they need to do. But with great power comes great responsibility. At least, that used to be the case. And the responsibility here is to write good sentences. So, clean this shit up. Deep breath. I've come up firing because the work deserves it, but there's also praise to be dished out, as well as further questions, and we'll look at those in the next section. So far, I've talked about style, which is never just about how a story is written or a sentence is constructed. Style is about more. In Phillips's case, the choice of using a style that wrongfoots the content, or content that wrongfoots the style, means there is a disconnect between the writing and the thing it's meant to describe, which is, at its best, distracting for a reader. It's hard to get into a book that is always pushing you away. But if you can get past this, which is not the same as forgiving or forgetting, because God forbid we forgive or forget, there is the matter of content. So what's going on in this book? Well, lots of things. From the DP camp in Cyprus to the concentration camp in Germany, we go to the ghetto, the original ghetto of 16th century Venice, as well as to the kingdom beyond the ghetto that is preparing for a foreign war, which can only mean one thing, Othello, which is great, which I fully applaud and endorse. Maybe I should have seen this one coming about 10 miles away, but I didn't. And when the moor appeared in the pages of this book, I was psyched. As I was trying to say at the beginning, when this novel goes someplace unexpected or new, it's doing something good. The scenes in the camp, style aside, were expected scenes. They were stories I had read before. People seeing imaginary relatives, not knowing how to contend with liberation, being lost in the world. 
Martin Amos once said, misguidedly, that one does not wish to trespass on the memory of the Holocaust. And not trespassing is very much the guiding principle of Phillips's description of this time. Don't make anything up. Don't stray from convention. As much as this book is about outsiders, and as much as Phillips, a writer who identifies himself by his dual homelands, UK and St. Kitts, is writing beyond himself in choosing a Jewish woman as a protagonist, he is still very much inside the accepted areas of describing the Holocaust. This, of course, is an enormous debate that we could talk about elsewhere, but for now, all I'm going to say is that so long as Phillips tells us a story we already know, it's not of great interest, and that's the best that can be said about it. Far, far better is when Phillips goes off the beaten track. He does this in two cases. First, when Phillips describes life for Ava Stern and her family in the ghetto, these were sections of the plot where I genuinely had no idea where the storyline was going. Second is when Phillips relays a 1480 blood libel trial in a town called Porto Bufale, just outside Venice. For those who don't know the term blood libel, this is a myth that Jews use the blood of Christian children in their religious rites and obtain this blood by kidnapping and exsanguinating such children in gruesome manner. It's a surprisingly durable myth in the sense that you can still see it referred to in editorial cartoons to this day. When Phillips tells the story of this trial in 1480, it is unlike the rest of the book, fascinating and gripping. And it is so in large part because the story he relays, the accusations, arrests, public trial, and equally public humiliation and execution are new. The storyline of the blood libel trial set in 1480, which stands in for so many like it across the centuries of Christian Europe, is also an invitation to meditate on the title of the book. The difference between medieval anti-Semitism and its 20th century variant lies in the fact that the earlier version was religious, and the latter version is what we would call, for lack of a better term, racial. In 1480 Venice, one could cleanse the soul, as it were, through conversion from Judaism to Christianity. In the 20th century ideology of Nazis and their followers, you cannot convert a Jew. Jewishness is in the blood. Phillips doesn't look at this directly, but he doesn't need to. It flutters around the pages and, after all, it's stamped on the cover with a title that is very much a question. What is the nature of blood? And when it's looking into this question, prompting the reader to ask, what connects the residents of the Jewish ghetto of Venice to Ava Stern to Othello? The book can bring up all kinds of great ideas. It can be very good. So, things to admire. They are there. But this book reminded me too much of that other novel I read years ago, Crossing the River. A book that felt like an obligation to write was an obligation to read. Phillips intrigues constantly, but only when he's telling me different stories. So long as he continues to tackle the big themes and big subjects in a big way, he'll remain marginal. He's shown he can do more, but will he put it all together? Has he done so in another novel, one I haven't yet read? I'd be curious to hear it if that's the case. Thank you for listening. Next up will be a review of Cesar Era's frankly strange and intriguing novel set in the slums of Buenos Aires, which are not like any slums I've seen visited or heard about. The novel is Shantytown. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button. 
all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the links to Burning Books. I also enjoy your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. Our usual reader, Bernadette Books, had a cold these last few weeks, so thank you to our special guest reader, Alina Vogelnest. With pleasure. To Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. Okay, I don't even know what this word is. Pujit? I've never heard of that before. What the hell is that, a Pujit? It's a Peugeot. And as always, go Jays. Greetings, I'm Ian Wynn, host of Latopia After Dark. As a Californian living in London, I have a special relationship with myself, and it's one I'd like to share with you. Okay, that came out wrong, but what I'm trying to say is here on Latopia After Dark, we bridge the gap between nations, generations, people, and ideas. We reach out and... No, we don't touch people, but our guests are experts in their fields, all of them can read, and none of them take themselves too seriously, or at least not for very long. Welcome to Latopia After Dark, a digital campfire for the internet age. So sit down, grab some wood, and get warm. I'm gonna have to do this again, aren't I?